the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Are you done? The following program is sponsored by the National Prayer Chapel.
Welcome to Pilgrim's Progress. I'm Pastor Ray from the National Prayer Chapel. If Jesus came to preach in your church, what would he say? We need to let Jesus today speak for himself. We do have his first sermon. As I shared this, and as I studied and prayed, the question did occur to me, why didn't Jesus begin his teaching with something other than repent? That was Jesus' first word, both in the book of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. He came preaching repent. Why didn't he come saying, God loves you unconditionally, and I've come to express that love. Why didn't he come saying, I'm going to give you a Bible, and it will be the infallible word of God? Why didn't he come saying, I was born of a virgin? Why didn't he come saying, God is one, and, and it's a triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Why didn't he come? Why didn't he come and say, the single most important thing you need to know is that you are justified by faith in Jesus, in me, he, see, he said. Why didn't he say that? You're justified by faith, and you're saved by grace. Why didn't he say you can never leave your sin? You're always going to be unrighteous, but when God looks at you, he won't see you. He'll see me. Why didn't he say, I mean, in much of what I've just described, we would all agree there is truth. What is the purpose of the church today? You would have as many answers to that as there are people. But interestingly, one survey that was done, the largest percentage of people said the purpose of their church today is to just try to survive. One mega church, they have four goals for their church that guide them in everything they do. Number one, they want to provide quality worship experience. Number two, they want to offer warm, supporting fellowship. Number three, they want to disciple. They want to teach people the theology of the church. And four, they want outreach into the community. Those are the four goals of this very large mega church, considered by many to be one of the top churches in the evangelical community in America. When people heard Jesus preach, teach, they said about it, about his teaching, well, we've never heard anybody talk like this before. 
He speaks as one who has authority. Well, what did he say? Let's take a bit of a look. We could spend days on this, and I may come back and walk through it carefully with you, but let's just take a look at what Jesus thought was most important, what God thought was most important as he came and began to address us as human beings. And you will be shocked to discover, perhaps, those of you who haven't spent much time listening to this broadcast, you'll be shocked to discover that Jesus' first concern was not that you know that he loved you. It was not even that you should be born again. Let me share with you his heart. He gives us the be happy, the blessed attitudes. He's describing what needs to happen in a person's life if they are going to enter into the kingdom of God. He's describing those who will be welcomed there. In other words, everyone will not be welcomed into the kingdom of God. That's the first shock that we face when we begin to look honestly at Jesus' words. Everyone is not welcome in the kingdom of God. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of the heavens. And again, that word poor is meaning grinding poverty, just cannot help themselves. So Jesus begins to talk about the gospel, the good news, by saying, if you're going to enter into the kingdom of heaven, you're going to have to recognize you're not going to get there until you've repented. And secondly, you're going to have to weep over your condition. So you're going to have to recognize your sin, and you're going to have to weep over that sin. Third, the result will be your heart will be humbled before God. And as your heart is humbled before God, you're going to begin to cry out, would you teach me, oh God, would you teach me, I'm hungry to be innocent before you. I've walked the wrong way. I've sinned against you. Now will you show me the right way? And as you walk in that, there will be a natural response of mercy, recognizing your own heart. Mercy will begin to flow in your life. And you will be given a pure heart. You will become a peacemaker, not a troublemaker. And then you will be persecuted because you will be totally unlike the world. You'll be persecuted because of innocence, righteousness, not because of theology. 
you will be persecuted because you will not go along with a worldly system. You won't buy into it. Now, he moves forward from that point, and frankly, for many years, I did not preach or teach on the Sermon on the Mount. I would pull out one passage here or there, one principle, and I would talk about that. But it's a unified whole. And if you're going to understand Jesus and what it means to be a Jesus follower, you have to understand the Sermon on the Mount. It begins with recognizing your desperate need and condition before a holy and righteous God. Then he says, okay, you've gone through this process now of recognizing your condition. You have wept over the wickedness of your heart. You have humbled yourself before God. You have learned about how to walk in innocence without harming others. You have become merciful and kind-hearted. Now he says, you are, the sal- you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt may become tasteless, by what means will it be made salty? It's good for nothing except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. So <clears throat> he's saying, look, what you've gone through so far, you've got to maintain. It's, it has bite. You're different than the world. You're unlike the world. You're separated. And you're separated not by theology, not by doctrine. You're separated by innocence, by humility, by mercy. He says, you're the light of the world. Do you light a lamp and then put it under a A basket? No. You don't hide your righteousness, your innocence before men. Then verse 17, and this is the shocker. Do not begin to think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I came not to abolish, but to fulfill. And if you read on through this short part of the Sermon on the Mount, he is saying, look, you're going to have to walk in righteousness, in innocence. And in that innocence, you are going to fulfill the law. You're not going to break the law. But righteousness is not going to come to you through the law. It's going to come to you through the Father by Jesus Christ. A radical transformation of your life. In fact, he says you have to be more holy, more righteous than the Pharisees. Now, he wants us to understand what that righteousness looks like. 
Now, let me just stop a moment. I, I want to say this to you. I've been a Christian all my life. And what I'm sharing with you today, I have not ever been taught in any church I've attended. In fact, if you look at the primary teachings of the Christian church today, they are doctrinal in nature. The Bible is the infallible word of God. There's a triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, virgin birth. We are given doctrinal understandings. And then the church is the place where there is, is joint worship, where there is fellowship, where there is discipleship, where there is outreach, where a culture is built, an institution is built. This is not the way Jesus approached the work of the gospel. This is not how he taught. This is not what he was about. Oh, doctrinal issues are vital. Paul told Timothy, watch carefully your doctrine. But we've got to understand what Jesus says for himself about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And his first concern is that we repent, that we recognize the utter wickedness of our heart, that we begin to humble our hearts before him as we weep over our condition, that we have mercy for others, that we not judge. And then when we come to the content of his sermon, it's about righteousness. You see, the, the number one thing on Jesus' mind is sin and how a man or woman or boy or girl can be changed from a sinner into a saint a follower, a righteous person. And so he immediately teaches at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount that he didn't come to abolish the law, that he came to fulfill it. And that unless his followers' righteousness is greater than that of the Pharisees, they cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. And so he now wants to become very, very specific so that we will understand clearly what he's trying to teach us about this faith in him. And so Matthew 5, verses 21 forward, you heard that it was said to them of ancient times, you shall not commit murder. And whoever may, may murder will be subject to the judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother without cause will be subject to judgment. And whoever may say to his brother, Radka, will be subject to the Sanhedrin. But whoever may say, you fool, 
you piece of garbage. I'm not going to have anything to do with you. You're beneath me. He's saying that person will be sent to hell. He's saying, if you come to bring your gift to the altar and remember that you have harmed a brother, go make that right before you bring your offering before God. Be reconciled with your brother. Have you cut anybody off? Have you dismissed them with prejudice? Calling them a fool? A garbage? Because they didn't line up with what you know to be right. Your standard of what is right and wrong. Now, so he identifies this issue of murder, of anger, of rage. And then he goes right to the heart of it, and he begins to speak about sexuality, about adultery. You heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that every man looking on a woman to lust after her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, if your right eye causes you to sin, you must tear it out and must throw it from you as far as... He only knows amputation. If your right hand causes you to sin, you must cut it off. It doesn't say, Jesus does not introduce the gospel of Jesus by saying, God loves you unconditionally. Just the contrary. He's saying, look, there are very specific conditions for my love to come into your life. You cannot be a follower of mine and you cannot enter into the kingdom of God if there is rage filling your heart and judgment toward another person. You cannot enter my kingdom if you are having a heart filled with lust. Now, it was said, whoever may divorce his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, that whoever may divorce his wife except for the matter of sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery. And whoever may marry a woman having been divorced commits adultery. There's not in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount an allowance for sin. There is not even the faintest whiff of unconditional love. Have you divorced someone for any reason other than marital unfaithfulness with sexuality? And then you've married someone else? Then you're, in Jesus' eyes, you're an adulterer. You have grossly sinned against him. And that means we have to go back to the very beginning of the Beatitudes and recognize how utterly lost we are. How 
how we have so sinned against him. Are you considering divorce? I can tell you now Jesus hates divorce. Don't do it. I just spoke with a woman who is in the midst of a divorce because he wants children and she doesn't want children. And so she says, I love him, but I can't be with him because I I refuse to be a mother. Well, that woman is in desperate shape before God. She says, the most loving thing I can do is release him so he can go find a wife that can have children with him. Well, he hasn't committed adultery. He hasn't been sexually unclean. So she is grossly sinning against him. What I want you to see here today is that Jesus was very concerned about behavior. Jesus is very concerned about what you do because according to Revelation, in the end judgment, you are going to be judged based on what you have done. Now, what you have done is not how you earn salvation. You cannot earn it. It is a free gift. But neither can you enter into that free gift if you don't meet the conditions that Jesus lays down for you. And that first condition that he lays down is an absolute uncovering of the sin of our hearts. And weeping over how we have so grieved him and allow him to then begin to humble our hearts to bring us into relationship with himself where we can be innocent before him. Innocence is not a concept. It is an actuality. It is life. It is, it is the way we behave. It is the way we think. It is what goes on in our mind. So Jesus then says, Again, you heard it, that it was said to them of ancient times, You must not swear falsely, but you must keep your oaths to the Lord. But I say to you, swear not at all, neither by heaven or by the throne of God, nor by the earth, for it is the footstool for his feet, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. He's saying, look, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Be a person of your word. You don't need to add anything to it. Just say yes or no before God. That's the whole thing. Now Jesus begins to focus in this Sermon on the Mount on retaliation. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, resist not the evil person. But whoever will strike you on the right cheek, 
turn to him the other also. And the one wishing to sue you and take your shirt, give him the coat also. And whoever will compel you to go one mile, go with them too. You must give to the one asking you and the one desiring to borrow from you. You may not turn away. So if someone comes to you and says, please, I need your help, will you give to me? Jesus said, if that's within your ability, you give to them. And you don't take vengeance on your enemy. And if they come to sue you, let them take whatever they want. That becomes very practical. What if they want all that you have? Then you give it to them. And you don't go fight them in court. Now, I recognize that that is not that is not the standard of our culture. For many years, I was a pastor in a very specific holiness denomination. And they believed some things that simply were not biblical. And they became increasingly upset with me because I was preaching what the scriptures taught and not what their doctrine taught. For example, they believed that there was at the end of time, beginning in 1844, an investigative judgment. Well, that's not taught in the scriptures. They believed they had a prophetess who spoke truth. They said it was not equal to scripture, but their treatment of her was that it was equal to her. The scriptures and her words were equal. In fact, her word was a lamp causing us to understand the scriptures. I could not accept that. And so they fired me. Now, according to their rule book, they owe you a severance pay that amounted to quite a few thousand dollars. And so I requested that severance pay. And their response to me was, sue us. Hire an attorney and come after us. Well, I couldn't do that. I had to ask them as Christians that they would honor the contract I had with them. And they refused and said, sue us. Now, I know had I sued them, I would have collected all that was due me and I would have collected the court costs, and the attorney's fees as well because others had done the same thing. And if you sued them, they would pay. I couldn't do that because of this word right here that said, no, do not sue. 
also, I lost thousands of dollars. You know what? Jesus has more than made that up for me. That was my retirement money that was being stored. Jesus has not ever told me to retire. I'm 75, and I'm not even beginning to be ready to retire. In fact, I'll probably die preaching the gospel. I'm not going to retire now, and I won't retire when I get to heaven. I don't find retirement anywhere in the scriptures. We're called to serve the Lord and to serve one another. Now, it says, you heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, you must love your enemies, must bless the ones cursing you, must do good to the ones hating you, and you must pray for the ones abusing you and persecuting you, so that you may be sons of your Father in heaven, for he cares and causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If, in fact, you may love the ones loving you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do that? And if you may be found or fond of your friends only, what extraordinary things are you doing? Do not even the tax collectors the same? Therefore, you must be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. That's what Jesus is saying in his first message on how to be a follower of his. That in your heart, there can be no room for hating another person. Even if they are exceptionally evil. Now that does not mean that you should allow them to abuse you It doesn't mean you shouldn't move away from them to separate yourself from them. I don't go to the bar and sit among the ungodly so I can enjoy their fellowship. I don't enjoy their fellowship. I don't enjoy their drunken conversation. And so I don't go there unless it's to bear testimony and witness and call them to repentance. But I recognize that God's mercy is for the just and the unjust. He's saying, love your enemies. Do you have enemies today? And I have to tell you, I have some very angry, mean enemies who have treated me with great contempt who have who have treated me as an unclean thing oh they have their reasons for why they should act that way toward me i can't return that anger and that bitterness according to jesus according to jesus i have to pray for them 
You know what? Every morning as I come into the prayer closet, the first thing I begin to do after I praise the Lord and worship him, I begin to pray for my enemies. I begin to pray for those men and those women who have cursed me, who have cut me off, family who has judged me, friends who are no longer friends. I pray for them. And I pray something very specific for them. I pray the blessing of Jesus in their lives. I pray that the Holy Spirit will minister to them. I pray that, and I pray for them by name, with specific issues often, asking the Holy Spirit in his great mercy to deal with them. to remove the anger and bitterness and judgments from their heart, to restore them in fellowship if that's the issue. I give them to Jesus. Why? Especially when I have every right to be bitterly angry and hurt by them. I'm not allowed to be. The Lord has humbled my heart. And sometimes people are angry with me because I've made a serious mistake. And so in their mind, they're totally justified in being bitter and angry. And when they see me, they walk on the other side. It's okay. It's all right. I pray for them. I ask the Lord to send the rain and the showers and the sunshine upon their hearts and their lives. I don't have the time or the energy to not forgive. I can't carry someone else in my heart in anger and bitterness, there's no room in my heart for that. My heart is too full of Jesus. My heart is too full of love. My heart is too full of compassion and mercy. I don't have time for the bitterness. I've not always been this way, please. I used to cut people off. Oh, my. If they didn't agree with me theologically or practically, I would just cut them off. I can't do that anymore. I've had to repent for that wickedness. Jesus is, is saying, look, you have to be perfect. You have to be perfect. Chapter 6, you must pay attention not to do your kind deed before men to be noticed by them. But if not, you have no reward 
from your Father who's in heaven. Therefore, when you may do a kind deed, you must not sound the trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogue and in the streets, that they may be praised by men. Truly I say to you, they are receiving the full reward. But while doing your kind deeds, your left hand must not know what your right hand is doing, so that your kind deeds may be in secret, and your Father, the one seeing in secret, will himself reward you in the open. Talks about about how you pray, how you fast. He's saying, don't, don't try to impress people with who you are or what you are. Just be who you are in Jesus. Be innocent in Jesus. Be innocent in Jesus. Be perfect. To be perfect is to be innocent. I love John Wesley on this issue. And there are many passages of Scripture that would say this as well, that to be perfect is to be totally in love, kind-hearted, merciful, caring. (laughs) An Anglican bishop cast me out of an Anglican church because he heard me preach in the sermon that we were called by God to be perfect. Made him really angry because he said, no, we cannot be perfect. We are always going to be sinners. But he didn't know that he was casting me out in good company. John Wesley was also cast out of the Anglican church over this issue. And I forgave this bishop, and I pray for him. I pray God's blessing for him. Maybe I ought to just stop and ask you for a minute. Do you need to make a list of your enemies? And then to go through each one of these people who has hurt you, caused you harm, caused you to lose a job or a position or money, who has sued you, do you need to go through all of those people and deliberately bring each one before Jesus and repent of your rage and anger and bitterness toward them? Is there someone you haven't spoken to in years or months or days because you're so angry with them? Because they hurt you or they stole from you? you need to forgive them. I find it helpful to make a list of everyone that I've hurt. And I have done that several times and I've gone through that list with Jesus. And then I've had to write out a list of those who've hurt me. Now please understand what I'm going to say to you. When someone hurts you, they wound you deeply. And those wounds hurt. They bleed. 
I'm not pretending that they don't hurt. I was hanging a picture on the wall of my home, and I somehow, the hammer slipped and hit my thumb. It hurt. It really hurt. Now, I had a choice. I could curse, or I could lift it up to Jesus and say, Lord, this thumb hurts. I'm sorry I was so clumsy and so foolish. Will you heal my thumb? Right now, I am very vulnerable emotionally because of some things that people who are very close to me have said and done. I have to decide, and I have decided, how I'll respond to that indignity, into that unjustified treatment. I've chosen. One, I can say I'm very vulnerable and I have some boundaries up so that I can't be hurt again. Not walls, boundaries. There's a difference between a wall and a boundary. And I need some time to heal. When we're cut off, when we're dismissed, summarily judged, spoken harshly against, it hurts. But according to Jesus, we don't retaliate. We don't treat in kind. We don't deny that we hurt. We even weep over our hurt. But we don't let the hurt turn to bitterness. Yes, it'll take time for that hurt to heal. But like a wound in the flesh, a piercing with an arrow, if we get the treatment of Jesus. We will not die. We will live. Now, some of you have been treated very unfairly. You've been divorced unjustifiably. You've been cursed. You've been cut off. Some of you live with a spouse who is utterly hateful and says, incredibly mean things to you. It doesn't help to simply deny the hurt. The hurt is real. And Jesus does not ask us to deny the anguish and the pain caused in our life by another person. What he asks us to do is to forgive them, to release them, to not treat them in kind. He doesn't say, don't weep over your wound. 
But he says, forgive them. Let them even steal from you. Let them take that which is your security, your retirement. Let them, let them steal from you. And don't judge them. When Jesus gives this Sermon on the Mount, it seems that his primary concern is what we do, how we act, where we go, what we say, how we respond to hurt. And the secret, entire secret of the Sermon on the Mount is found in the Beatitudes. where we recognize how desperately we have hurt Jesus, where we recognize how we have desperately hurt brothers and sisters, husbands and wives, children, and we repent before God. And we weep over what we have done. And we humble our hearts. We humble our hearts. In other words, we take down our defenses. We take down the walls that will batter and hurt and kill others. We humble our hearts. Oh, pastor, if I do that, they're going to take advantage of me. Yes, it's okay. It's all right. You don't have to get ahead. You have to get down low. Well, I'm not going to be a doormat. Really? What are you going to do? Sit on the throne? You forgive those who treat you poorly. You love them. You treat them with kindness. Treat them with mercy. Why? Because you've been treated with mercy. God has not treated you as you deserved. He's treated you with kindness. He's been merciful to you. And he's given you a pure heart. He's called you to be a peacemaker. And you will be persecuted. You will be hurt. You will be hurt. And frankly, one of the issues that I've struggled with in my life is, can I just put the walls up? Don't let anybody come close again so I can't get hurt. Do you know what? Love is such a risk. It's a risk to love another person because they may utterly disappoint you. They may take advantage of you. They may undermine you. They may cause you great damage. 
but every person deserves the right to love and be loved. But love that Jesus deals with comes out of humility of heart, poorness of spirit, a recognition of who you are. Well, we haven't finished the Beatitudes. Next week, we're going to come back and deal more with the Sermon on the Mount. I hope it's been helpful to you. Lord, I just pray now for every person listening. I pray your blessing. Lord, some are just really hurting because of how they've been treated so wickedly. Some are hurting because they've been cut off and left alone. Some are hurting because they're alone and they're lonely. Lord, would you come and minister to everyone today who is hurting? And would you call us into that place of repentance? I pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, you've been listening to Pilgrim's Progress. I'd love to hear from you. You can give. You can go online, nationalprayerchapel.com. You can get our address there. My brother, my sister, I love you. I'm glad you shared today with me. Tomorrow will be a prayer day. Friday is the day where we open the mics, call and pray. God bless you. I love you. I'll talk to you soon.